Hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Doug Paget here today. Uh, it's ju- September thirteenth, not July thirteenth. September thirteenth. So glad to have you uh, with us today. It's Wednesday, and that means on Wednesdays we talk to people about issues of faith, how they're being people of goodness in the world. And I love a story of change, a story of transition, a story of transformation. Because look, at the end, that's what we're all wanting, right? For ourselves, for the people around us. I I live in a place where in the fall, it changes colors, it changes temperature. In the winter, it changes colors and temperature as well. But we live in this world where there's these dynamisms and these changes. Well, that's what we want for all of us. Now, I hope that our changes tend to lead us into a more common good life, a more life-giving kind of life, a more human flourishing kind of life. That's what we all, all hope for. But change is going to come. Change is going to happen. And when we can put a little bit of effort, a little bump of the, you know, the pinball machine of life to move that ball a bit, when we move it into areas of goodness, when we move it into areas of better life for all of us, well, that's exciting. So the conversation we're going to have today is with a friend of mine named Will Sampson. I've happened to know Will for a long time. Back in the early 2000s, we were together in a movement that was often referred to as the emerging church movement. We were trying to figure out how to help churches live and be better in the world, more inclusive, more kind, better for each other and better for all. And we were trying to figure that out in, in religious structures, in business structures, and all kinds of things. Well, Will has gone on in his work for his own personal transformation, which he'll talk about. Movement through addiction, a movement through the kind of, of, of religious background that he had. When I had first met him, he had just recently, in the previous you know, few years, had come out of being deeply embedded in the religious right, working with Ralph Reed, working uh, hand-in-hand with Jerry Falwell, but has gone through these tremendous transformations. He had back in the early 2000s, he continues them you know, two decades later to be doing this work. And so in a lot of ways, Will's story, I think you'll find as a story of maybe your own life or that what you're hoping for for others, because there are days where we just say to ourselves, man, are we stuck in a rut? Well, Will talks about his own stuckness and how he moved through that, both before the 2000s and most recently. He talks about his own uh, transformation through addiction. And now he's a business coach, he's an entrepreneur, he's a writer with a book out, he's got all kinds of things going on. And I think you're going to find this conversation super interesting, super helpful. Will got to come into my basement. Um, first time that in this form of the podcast, I've had somebody live here in the basement. We launched all this during the, the pandemic, of course, and you know, we we're squirreled away in our houses, in our dens, and our basements, and our family rooms and dining rooms. Well, Will got to come into my basement, which is super fun for me. So, okay, a couple of, uh, a couple of fellas talking about things that we think matter uh, in a friendship that has spanned two plus decades. And so I uh, hope you enjoy this. I'm going to be, uh, now I recorded this interview, which maybe I was alluding to already, recorded a couple weeks ago. In fact, recorded it on Will's birthday. So it's just something for some people that their birthday is a day where I don't know if the cells in their body or just the memories of their mind remember things and they kind of live differently. So anyway, happy birthday, Will, uh, in this conversation. And um, I'm going to stay on the chat. So if you're watching this live on Facebook or on Twitch or on uh, X, if anybody's still over there, uh, or on a YouTube channel, which is our preferred place, the Vote Common Good YouTube channel, uh, I'm going to be here to uh, chat with you. So if you're uh, making any comments, uh, Jim, I already see your comments this morning. Thank you for the hearty good morning from Ventura, California. It's bright and early out there, my friend. Good to see you, Jim and Peggy. Uh, nice to see you as well. So others, tell us where you're from. By the way, Minneapolis going to be uh, 65 degrees and sunny today and then 80 tomorrow. Just a wild, wild weather pattern around here in the fall. Uh, let us know where you're watching from, how the weather is for you. Because if you want to be reminded of a good old-fashioned change, you know, just look at the sky. All right. Uh, so here's our conversation. Chat with me in the, in the chat if you have any comments or anything else. I'd love to keep up with you. And uh, here's this fabulous conversation with Will Sampson. You can find more about Will if you want to at willsampson.com. Um, that's in the little tag notes here, but I didn't put it in the, on the screen. All right. So here's my conversation with Will from uh, a week or so back history. We have a rich history. Uh, it's not very often that someone gets to come into the studio here, which is also just my basement and a little, 
uh, wannabe guitar den. Right. Um, so nice to nice to have you as the inaugural guest in the basement. Sorry, it's hot down here. It's great. Thank um, you, Doug. Wonderful to be uh, back here in Minneapolis and hanging out with you. So thank so, you. Um, we've known each other a long time. We have. Oh, and you had a long life before we met. Yes. Uh, you've been a political consultant for the religious right in the past. Yes. You're mm -hmm. a consultant now for people who are trying to bring about good in business and in their own lives. You've um, gone through your own transitions of faith and life. You're uh, talking uh, well about your own recovery, which I think is an important Absolutely. piece of all this, because mm -hmm. the individual personal recovery is also part of what you know, we all need in our health yeah. of our society. So, so excited yeah. about this. Thank you. Um, what are you what, what are you up to now that you're most excited about? What what's the yeah probably the biggest project I'm working on right now is helping imagine what the future of work looks like. So when I work with my corporate clients, so often they're uh, caught up in these questions about are we going to bring people back into the office? What do we do of with these factors like the Great Resignation and quiet quitting and uh, what I find is that those are often the wrong questions. And if you ask the wrong questions, you're going to end up at the wrong place. Hmm. And so what I'm doing both sort of on a, on a corporate level, helping the companies I work with, um, is helping them reimagine culture and what it looks like to reimagine work, but then also helping to foster new entrepreneurial ventures mm -hmm. that address some of the major issues that we face in our culture. You know, one of the big things I find in my individual coaching is, um, Folks want to know, how do I deal with this? How do I create work-life balance, mm. right? And to me, um, or what I observe, I guess I should say, is that I see entrepreneurs go out, they start a company, they, they have this you know, massive effort for five years or seven years, and then, and then they begin to say, okay, now I've created this thing. How do I make it have the values I wish it had? Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, if, what if we just changed the equation and said, at the outset, I want my company or my venture mm. or this thing that I'm creating to add value in the world. I want it to have the values that I care about. Um, and what that would do is it would make those values part of the corporate and cultural operating system, not something that you had to come back and find a way to in inject mm. later. And, um, you know, so often we're, we're worried that our companies uh, and our organizations are not are, are very they're very they're working on very short term issues hmm. and usually working on issues that we tend to call engineering problems versus design uh. problems right so they're working on like how do I like Uber is a classic example of this Uber said taking a taxi cab in New York City sucks how do I make it better mm -hmm. right that's a known problem with a clear solution they they did it and many of us use Uber or Lyft or other other things other types of services, but what if instead we thought about some of the great problems that we face, structured inequality, the environmental issues that, that plague, plague our world, and we said, how can we begin to create solutions that allow for economic resilience? So we still have to make a living doing these things, that allow for economic resilience, but, um, but have sort of built into the operating si uh, system the desire to address real-world problems. They're, they're not thinking about what my exit is going to be in two years. They're thinking about what type of uh, world my grandchildren will inherit in 40. Hmm. Well, why do you care about this? Of all the things you've cared about, which have been many, we, we met has. thinking about religious narratives in America. Mm -hmm. You've cared mm -hmm. about politics. You've cared yeah. about education. You're a professor. Yeah. Why, do you, why does Will Sampson care about businesses now and how businesses are operating and their, the business contribution to life and society. Yeah. It is businesses, for good or bad, that create the world, that, that have a big role in creating the world that we live in mm. and creating or helping to solve the problems that, that plague us. So, you know, if you were to go back to 2003 or four and met a young Mark Zuckerberg who was talking about this application he had to bring college students together called Facebook, mm -hmm. you, you, you wouldn't necessarily have been asking the kinds of questions we might ask now, which is, what are we going to do when access and, um, you know, the, the complete ability to, to connect with people around the world, in fact, can often lead to greater levels of isolation. Um, and so the reason why I care about businesses is because we all have 
uh, a need to be economically resilient. We need a job. You can call it whatever, whatever is the right metaphor for it. But we, we have to find a way to get through our day. Um, and if we can organize, if we can organize the creation of value, and I'm not even all that crazy about the idea of companies. I think we're, we're nearing the end of a 500 year Delta where we've been thinking about companies since about the 15, 1600s, mm-hmm. what would it look like to reimagine value creation in the world? And if we could do that and do that in a way that related to commerce and our, our daily lives, that would have an added impact of, of actually maybe being able to address the kind of world we want to create that would begin to solve some of these issues. Do you think businesses are the right place to do this? And here's one of the reasons I'm asking it. There's a lot of this conversation among business ethicists and mm-hmm. business um, theorists. Yep. And in the United States, in the capitalist system we have, there's a real, really strong push among some of that crowd to say the primary outcome of businesses yeah. is wealth generation or right. shareholder value. Right. It's supposed to make money. Right. The context in which all of that is happening should be left to other sectors. Mm. So many of the people who are making what I think are the right arguments like you're making are here, are getting are pushing back on right. those ideas people in business by saying, look, it's, that's not our that's not our job. That's why we have government sectors and nonprofit sectors and religious sectors and sure. community engagement. Like don't mm-hmm. be asking us right and also, we might not be very good at this. <laughs> so uh, can you make the argument as to why, as opposed to people who say, look, the system is the system, and we're going to be the best to our employees we can be. We're going to try to be, like, we're going to work the best we can in the environment of the world, yeah. but we are not the people responsible for the world. How, how, do, you, how do you think on that? So, yeah, and there's, and there's really two questions there for businesses. Um, are we the people who should be addressing this? And can we? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to address the second one first, um, because the question of can we really has has to do with not only the decisions we make, but the kind of imagination we bring to the problem. So in venture capital, uh, we have this concept called a capital allocation bias. And, and that all that simply means is that venture capital tends to go to businesses that look like things that were funded and were financially successful. Mm-hmm. So if you can, um, I saw somebody, I listened to a venture presentation the other day for somebody who claims to be the next LinkedIn. Well, if they can actually substantiate that and make venture capitalists believe it, they will invest in them because we understand, we know Reed Hoffman made a lot of money in LinkedIn. And so that, that makes sense to us. Um, but, but the only imagine that requires, the only imagination that requires from us is can we do something that makes money? Hmm. Not can we do something that impacts the world, that, that, um, that changes the future of our planet, changes the future of democracy. Um, and I think when we bring those questions hmm. to the table, then we can find ways um, to be both sustainable hmm. and impactful. And we, we know the example. Like we, we, we know the examples. There's the Patagonias and the Tom's shoes sure. and all that. But we... I think we sometimes quote them to our own at our own fault because mm. we say, "Well, pa- Patagonia did it." Well, we're not Patagonia. Like, <laughs> how, how many coats do you need in the world? Like, how many? Yeah. You know, how many pants? How many pair of pants do you need? Right. Um, so there are a whole series of other issues that we could address um, that we could actually begin to um, build value creation entities. And mm. I'm I'm really purposely vague. I'll explain why in just a second. But sort of value creation entities. That, that both allow for economic sustainability and also are mm. impactful on, the, on the, f- the world of the future. And I'm vague because I think even the idea of a company, that's something we just assume. Well, you know. Yeah, sure. We gotcha. start companies. Why? Well, because we've been doing it for 500 years. Well, if this was 1400, would we have started companies? No, because the idea of a chartered company didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think in the same way, we're at this you know, uh, the great emergence or the, or the 500 year Delta, we have all these metaphors, but we're at this time in history where the way we've been doing things is worn out. Mm. And, um, and I think we need the imagination to create the kinds of 
entities, the kinds of things, the kinds of efforts in the world that just simply don't even exist because we don't have the language for it yet. Let's talk about how you've gotten here. So if we went back 25 years, which I think yeah. may, may, somewhere around 25 years ago we yeah. met, would that be right? That's correct. Late 90s? Yeah, uh, yeah 20, yeah, we met, I think we met in 2000. 2000, yep. okay. So uh, 23 years ago mm -hmm. we met. What was your life then? What is your life now? And, and, and what went up? Partly because, as, as I mentioned to you before we started, I think what's most interesting about these conversations is yeah. people that have brilliant ideas and then we find out who they are. Yeah, because I think that the world is driven by people. Yeah, I, I'm an I, I'm an ideator. I like ideas. Yep. I like content. I like uh, mm -hmm. imagination. But fundamentally, the way human beings experience yeah. the world yeah. is through the behavior of other human beings, <laughs> and understanding ourselves uh, or one another is so complicated. I can barely get my head around it. Right. So, uh, who who were you 23 years ago? Who are you now? And how did you get there? And then we can talk a little bit about who you were before we met 23 years ago when you were in that other political yeah. space different from where you are now. Yeah, yeah. 23 years ago, I was the CEO of a company called Smart Ministry, smartministry.com. So um, I had been, um, similar to you, I'd been part of the evangelical church growth movement um, I was at a conference at Willow Creek, which is a big church in, in Chicago, and was listening to somebody talk, sort of, they were trying to inspire the crowd, but what I realized is that the churches I had worked with the, and the nonprofit organizations I had worked with, um, they had plenty of inspiration. What they didn't know how to do was keep their books. What they didn't know how to do was, you know, manage their email <laughs> list, right? And my story, not to jump back too far in time, but... but uh, my original career was in politics, and I actually learned technology in politics as a way of meeting our needs. So, you know, if you go back to the late 80s or the 90s, <clears throat> a lot of the software that today helps run campaigns didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So we had to create it. So I had to learn how to do database programming and how to um, network offices. And I mean, so I kind of learned IT on the ground to help campaigns. And after I left politics, I was, <clears throat> I was working in churches bivocationally, so I was, um, I was employed as an IT professional, but I was working in churches bivocationally, and the churches that I had been around and that I knew of really were struggling with their basic administrative needs. So we had the idea to create something I called Smart Ministry. It was, uh, it was what we would today think of as almost a software as a service. It was an aggregated portal of services. Sure. Um, the problem was, so go back to the late 90s and the 2000s, imagine some guy you've never met walks in and says, totally. we're going to create a portal of software services. <laughs> a and you, portal. Yeah, like, yeah. Wh who is this man from another planet? I have no idea who this guy is. Um, or, or why would we, I, I mean, at that period of time, I had been working at a large church yeah. here in the area. Very successful, very uh, up-to-date, contemporary yeah. church. Yeah. And around, just I mean, three years before that, we were still having a conversation whether we should have a voicemail system or not, because there was currently a receptionist who answered the phone and took messages because it seemed more personal. And the idea that she, that she in this case, uh, Jen, would forward that to a voicemail was right. literally a conversation we yeah. had to have, whether it was right. because we were churches and not businesses, even though this was a very businessy minded church. So I would imagine right. you saying to churches... Hey, there's a way to use, you know, information portals to be more successful. Struck people as yeah, as peculiar. I, yeah, I might as well have been talking about a mission to Mars. I had no idea. Um, and um, while I think it was a great idea, we were. Um, this was around the time of the dot com bust, and so a year after you and I met, that company came to a crashing halt, okay. and I had to find my way back into. I had to find a job. <laughs> I, I needed a way to yeah, pay right. my mortgage. Um, and so I, I went back into IT, which I had been doing for a few years at that point. And even then realized this is not, uh, this is not what I want to give my time to. This is not what I want to spend my days doing. And so... Because you wanted something more meaningful? Because you thought the world needed yeah, something so I, more? Or I it just technology. wasn't your deal? Well, I learned technology to help people, and I realized that mostly what I was doing was sitting alone in a cubicle writing lines of code or, 
you know, gotcha. uh, or, or managing network, like looking at a network portal. And it was just not, that wasn't, uh, I didn't feel like I was actually helping people. It didn't okay. have any sense of purpose to it, which is how I got into the field of what's called, what we call change management. So uh, mostly, especially when it was conceived of, you know, earlier than now, it was, the idea was how do we, um, how do we help people transition to a new state, usually around the implementation of some, some kind of software package? So how do we move, a new, move people to a new HR system or a new ERP system or something like that? But even then, like, there was all kinds of, you know, against the backdrop of this was all this religious deconstruction. I was going to see you. We were hanging out in Nashville in a giant, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a giant yeah. convention center talking about deconstruction and talking about talking about what our, um, what our religious framework of meaning was, was going to be. Um, and it's curious to think, so, you know, back in our thirties, which yep, we were, yep. there were, we were going through this process of rethinking, not just how do we help churches be more effective, but what are we doing with these entities that Absolutely. we call churches and what's the story and yeah. is it actually helping anyone right. and should we help more people get connected? Is that going right. to be a good thing for the world or do we right. need to work on the product Right. And not just on the marketing and mm -hmm. and all of those questions. I just want to pause for a second and sort of jump us now to now. There's a whole new movement of deconstruction. Do you yeah. pay any attention to this? People in the same similar age stage. Sure. Right. Yep. Like yeah. somewhere in their 30s, yep. 40s, and they're asking these very same questions. There was a period of time back then where we sort of naively thought, hey, we're going to go through this process and then the whole <laughs> system will shift. <laughs> And as it turns out, it's, I don't know, it's more like fifth grade where like 25 years after you yeah. were in fifth grade, somebody new is going to start fifth grade tomorrow. A bunch tomorrow, of other 30-year-olds you know? are in the yeah. Yeah, religious fifth grade, yeah. So it seems to be a process that people go through, which uh, would have been fine had we known that. I guess we just, I don't know, I'm, I wonder if we thought um, we're talking more about a solution to a problem rather than a response to a set of conditions. Yeah. And... Do, yeah. Do you do you have any reflection on any of that that period of time before we? I do. I do, that? and I and I'll I'll try not to go too um, intellectual on it. So my my doctoral dissertation asked this exact <laughs> too, question. Too late now when you yeah, say I'll try true. not to be too <laughs> too academic on it. But in my doctoral dissertation, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Be as be as no. You look, you be as doctoral as as brilliant. Uh, Doctor Samson needs to be. Thank you. Um, you know, when we look back, there was there was this movement. If you go back and you watch Jesus Revolution, or or just if even if you were aware of at the time of kind of what was happening, there was the nascent evolution of the church growth movement in the '60s and the '70s, moving into the '80s. And I think there was a um, there was a sense that we needed to rethink the structures, mm -hmm. and so we said, well, let's not. Um, you know, let's not have pews, let's have chairs, let's not uh, have piano and organ music, let's have a guitar, let's, you know, and so on. And, and those were all sort of structural changes, but we didn't really question, fundamentally question the assumptions. I think what, what we were doing, what a lot of the movements that you and I were a part of were doing, were asking, how can we actually challenge some of the belief systems below that, 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 uh, that underpin these, these structural systems? Um, and in many ways, I think the 30 year olds who are asking those deconstructive questions today were given greater, a greater sense of permission from the mm -hmm. fact that we asked them, but I'll personalize it to answer the other question you asked, which is, do I think about that conversation anymore? And the answer is no, huh? I, I spend not a lot of time in it. In fact, I'm, I'm here with, um, uh, friends working, we've been working on a project for about 20 years that came out of that conversation yeah. called Common Change. Um, and I realized that many of us are not in anything that looks like a traditional religious context anymore. And yet the core values of how do I be of maximum service to the world? How do I uh, address some of these really significant structural issues that are going to affect the way my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren live? Like we're still asking those questions, we're just not asking them in the same from the same place. Hmm. We're asking them from a very different place. Do you do you remember when you stopped caring about what 
churches or the story of Christianity's impact on the world was going to be in wanting to be a participant in that. Do you remember when that happened? Yeah, and I would say that that's, it's, it's happened over time at greater levels. And so I, I thought of it literally this morning. So as I mentioned, today's my birthday. Um, ah, happy birthday. And my former priest, so my, my, my world was, or my uh, journey was from evangelicalism to more traditional faiths. I became an Episcopalian, and then I, I haven't been in, in a church in any kind of liturgical way in, in a couple of years, but my former priest reached out to me to say happy birthday. And, oh. um, and so I kind of thought of it this morning, but it's, it's almost, the, the analogy that comes to mind is it's, it's like when you're, when you're on a boat and you've sailed enough that you can no longer see the shore. Do you remember when you stopped seeing the shore? I don't nice. know. I remember the shore. Like, I remember the questions, and I, I, I still care about the questions, but, uh, but I don't remember when I stopped seeing the shore. Mm. It was just a, it was just a, it was a process. For me, it was a process of I became more focused on where I knew I was sailing, which I can't quite see, but I have these navigation guides now, values and, and stories and things mm. like that, that help guide me toward the place I want to go. Um, but that's the thing. Not, I'm not a sailor. I'm not a sailor. Uh, our, friend, our friend Ben is, but I'm yeah. not a sailor. But I know enough to use the, the metaphors, which is that, you know, once you leave, once you leave land... Um, you have to you have to have some things that guide you toward the place you're trying to go. So I I have a better sense of what guides me now, and it's very informed by all the all the things that I I once believed in deeply. I mean, a belief is just a story we keep telling ourselves. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm telling myself some different stories. They're still very connected to the historical Jesus and some and the historical sort of mission of the church, but not necessarily connected to the structured instances of, hmm. of religion. Um, In those 23 years, you've also gone through recovery. I have. How much did that experience uh, overall uh, entering into, feeling you're part of, and now yeah. identifying, how did that play into this shifting narrative for you as well? It was the single greatest um, um, event in, in that shifting narrative. So, um, I mean, yeah, you, you, because we've known each other for a number of years, you've seen some of my, some of me at some of my worst times, but about four years ago, I came to the place where I knew I couldn't keep doing what I had been doing. And there was, there was a lot of implications of, of, um, the way I was behaving in an addictive behavior. But as I kind of came through that, um, some of the implications were that I was no longer working where... In, in the, I, was no, I no longer had a job doing what I had been doing. Um, and then COVID happened. And so I'm, I'm, now I'm kind of by myself trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going um, to live in the world? Um, and um, what, When we had met, you were married. Yes. Um, and had younger age Younger kids. Kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you pull forward 20 years and kids grow up. But your marriage also My marriage ended. also fell apart. Mm -hmm. uh, was that a piece of all of this it for was. you? The yeah. moving on of kids and marriage changes and so on? It was, but I'm always cautious when I'm, when I'm telling my story um, to remind myself more than anyone that that's just a story mm -hmm. I chose to tell myself. Oh, my marriage is falling apart. I don't want to feel the pain. Let's drink. Oh, my kids are struggling. I don't want to feel the pain. Let's let's avoid that pain and suffering. And and I mention that because what's happened over the last few years in recovery is I have come to understand that these are all just stories I'm hmm. telling myself. Uh, Viktor Frankl says the you can take away everything from a human except the greatest freedom, which is the ability to choose our attitude in any given situation. Hmm. And so when when I, only speaking only from my own experience, when I came to a point of radical self-ownership, then I had to look for what my narrative was. What are the stories oh. I'm going to tell to myself 
which helped me then understand what stories do I want to be a part of outside of myself. Did it feel like you had a lot of support and help and practice in one set of stories and this new one was now? Oh, I would say the opposite was true. Okay. So for those who have gone through the recovery journey, what they real, what they can realize um, is that um, there's a group of people who are willing to love you and believe in you when you can't do that for yourself. I call it emotional capitalism. Like I had, I was, I came into the rooms of recovery, this just broken human um, who had not sort of really found a way to connect with my purpose, not found a, uh, a way to be sustainable in working through, working out my purpose in life. And because of that, I chose certain, uh, certain options that allowed me not to have to feel the pain. But over time, that also caused me to believe in myself less, less, to love myself less. Oftentimes you hear people in, in the recovery room say, um, I kept saying I was going to stop this behavior. I was going to get mm-hmm. healing. I was going to find recovery. And no one around me believed me because I'd said it so often. But what I discovered, Doug, is that the person who least believed me was me. Like, I, just, I thought I was, can I, can I use a profanity? You can talk about I thought that. I was full of shit. I'm like, yeah. fuck you. You're not going to do that. Like, you say yeah. you're going to do that, but you've been telling yourself you're going to do that for years, and you didn't. Yeah. Um, and so... And that has its own shame spiral to it Shame for, for spiral. You. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so as I came to own my own journey, own my own responses, as I became 100% responsible... The way I sometimes talk about it is I'm 100% responsible for me, and 0% responsibility, responsible for everybody else. Now, I have resources that I can bring to, to help change things, but I'm, I, I'm very, I feel very much in charge of m- the things I should do in the world, mm. but I have zero responsibility for the outcomes. Mm. I don't own the outcomes. What, what was your story before that in relationship to those responsibility to yourself? versus responsibility for other people. How, how, how were you thinking about that? Yeah, so I think like, like a lot of people, I had, I had some trauma. It was, it was more lowercase t trauma. I didn't have any you know, significant PTSD causing events, but I had some trauma. And um, I, I know for me, like, and, and this kind of goes back to the, the question of, of our religious narratives. For me, I kept looking for someone or something or some entity to come in and fix me. If only God would, if yeah. only the people would, if only <laughs> yeah. nobody was showing up. There's a lot, a lot of waiting going on in that story, <laughs> isn't there? Yeah. It was a dark time in the waiting room. Exactly. Yeah. It turns out the only one coming to save me is me. Um, and so what that, yeah. the, the, the danger of that for me was I have, I have believed so deeply and continue to believe so deeply in the power of interdependence, kind of mutual dependence and how we help each other succeed, that I, off, I had tended to see that as almost the opposite of radical self-ownership. But what I'm realizing is that when I can practice radical self-ownership, then I can engage in projects and relationships um, and bring me fully to that project because I'm... I have, I trust myself more. I'm, I'm less likely to think I'm full of shit. I'm when I make a commitment to somebody, I'm more likely to keep it. And so I can engage and think about long-term projects. I can engage and think about, um, initiatives that might have an impact 40 years from now, because I actually trust I'll be a little more consistent and more constant. Hmm. Between that period of, I don't know who, how I'm structured and feeling this confidence now, what were those days, weeks, years like in between yeah. there? Yeah. So for me, it was a, it was a, it's been kind of a lifelong experiment to understand what should I be doing in the world mm-hmm. that relates to what I sense is my purpose or relates to what my heart is telling me. Um, and even just kind of conditionally, I'm an Enneagram seven, so I don't spend a lot of time in my heart. I spend a lot of time in my head and thinking, you know, uh, thinking of plans, but, but the journey was, um, you know, I, I went from, I was in the corporate world working in change management. Um, I decided I wanted to go, um, perhaps teach. So I, so I left Mm -hmm. 
um, the Baltimore area. I moved with my family and young children to Lexington, Kentucky, where I did a doctorate and, and lived in intentional Christian community for, uh, I guess, eight years. Um, but even that, it, it, like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't overcome me. Mm. So I got to the place where I did the doctoral work, but I had a hard time finishing the dissertation. I did finish it later, but, um, and so I thought, well, I just got to make a living, I guess. So then I went back into corporate work and started doing change management. And I, I've been able to do some really cool stuff. I've done some large multi-billion dollar mergers, but, um, what I, what that did was it set me on a trajectory where I am, I can't rise above the level of the leader or the organization. So if the leader or the organization is not really committed to creating a different world, then it's difficult for me to engage with them and help them be that, mm. which is really what started the whole idea of how do, we, how do we spur on entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs towards starting things that incorporate the values we want to see in the world and that we want to see in the, in the marketplace. This might not be an accurate reflection, so feel free to say, I don't know if I see it that way, but... I'm thinking about 23 years ago, the conversations we had, how you've described it now, trying to help churches engage, churches that are part of social enterprise efforts, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to engage and think about their practices and what could be learned from other systems and theories, business or... yeah. And now you're working with businesses, trying to help them think about how they can care about the kinds of things that churches are yeah. meant to. Yeah. Is there something there? Have you ever, is that dawned on you? Do you think about it that way at all? Is there, it's dawned on me. I've, I've told myself that I'm, that at this particular time in my life, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not going to concentrate on social organizations, on political organizations necessarily that I'm really kind of drilled down on, on business and entrepreneurship. So, but I have thought about it, and I think what um, what they both share is the idea that um, any plan that you create um, that that tries to lay out what you're going to do for the next year or five years or ten years is foolish foolishness. It's 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 of no value. That we live now in a design time, and so what we need to be about mm -hmm. is trying smaller experiments. And I think this is true for churches or any other organization that wants to have, leave an imprint on the world. What could we do now that, would, that we could look at and see some results in the next 30 days or the next three months? Um, hmm. And not so much what's the story I'm telling myself about, uh, about the world and how do I create, mm -hmm. how do I live in that? You know, we, um, we share a friend who is consulting with a, a large church out in the va in Silicon Valley. And um, they have some, they're asking some of the right questions, but inevitably they default back to how do I get people to show up yeah. and put money in the basket so we, stay, yeah. so we stay a vibrant financial entity, right? And that's just, that's just not, a, that's not a question. It's similar to businesses that are saying, how do I get people back in the office? But don't those questions have to be addressed? as well? Or are you saying those are not, like when you say wrong question, do you mean yeah. wrong question if it's the only question? Or do you mean, don't worry about if you sell product, don't worry about if people show up and find interest and value in your church community? Yeah. No, I'm saying don't be invested in the way we think about it today. So, um, you know, if I said, uh, let's say I said, well, hey, I called you up and I said, Doug, I want to go to Chicago. You could say, well, you know, take I-80 or whatever. Mm -hmm. A better question would be, where are you? Where mm -hmm. are you right now, right? And I, and I think in the same way, like we, um, we think of, um, like we think we understand what we're doing, but when we are willing to take smaller, smaller bites at doing something substantial, mm -hmm. um, do it in smaller time frames, and I think the same is true for businesses as for mm. churches, nonprofit organizations, even campaigns. Like, let's not try to change the world. Let's literally, what can we do right now? Um, and this is something again that I learned from the rooms of recovery. Like, yeah, okay. um, I used to think 
well, how am I going to fix this? Like this giant problem that usually was something I had created in my mind. Um, but that wasn't the right question. The right question was, what's the, what's literally the next right thing I'm supposed mm -hmm. to do? Mm -hmm. That's cause that's all I can control. Whatever, whatever's going to happen a minute from now, five minutes, a meteor may hit your house. Yeah. The, but these are really competing uh, narratives, right? Yeah. Because some people are like, look, you've got to stay focused on a North star. Right. Was, because again, they'll use some nautical. Sure. In our, in American culture, we tend to use nautical references <laughs> and horse references right. at an unbelievable rate compared to other things. Right. It is true. Where most people have not sailed or been responsible for the sailing of a vessel. Right. Nor ridden a horse. Right. But you just start paying attention to these metaphors we use. But people will, you know, you've got to lock in because if you're one degree off, over time, you're going to end up in this radically different space. Right. Like that's how people think about our, how we talk about mm -hmm. envisioning what we're supposed to do and, and, and where we're supposed to be. And do we have a clarion call? Right. And uh, do people actually want our thing? And then there's just the sheer question for so many leaders of, will we literally make payroll? Yeah, sure. Like like that fundamental question, right, right? Which can to a lot of people be like next right thing, get money in the account. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. That, absolutely. Like that is it. So are you saying what are you saying in relationship to those to to those other narratives that are out there where the next right thing is making sure you're successful enough to be around tomorrow and don't veer off course because over time if someone's not watching the north star, you're going to end up you know, Christopher Columbusing this thing. And yeah, the, the way it makes sense to me is that, uh, the further you go from today, the more that North star should be, uh, stated in terms of values and less in terms of specific destination, hmm. um, that I want a world that is, or I want a company that is. So describe a value. What I, I, I hear this a lot. Mm -hmm. I feel like people use have different definitions of what counts as a value. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you think about let's <clears throat> let's explain, let's let's uh, articulate this in terms of values and not sure. outcomes. Yep. What's a value? What 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 comes to your mind when you're So I'll give you a real specific example that I use with my corporate work and it's a value of moving from what I call leadership to contributorship. So so often and this is true in churches but it's true in, in companies as well. We have leadership based on organizational structure or leadership based on, you know, conceptions of, of hierarchies. You mean like positions? Positions, somebody's, yeah. Somebody's a leader I'm the CEO, if therefore sure. I'm the CTO, therefore everybody in the technology organization does this thing. Um, but for me, a value is moving from that to contributorship where we say, um, I may have a particular title given to me by by where I stand in the, in the hierarchy, but what I... What I recognize is that my the best way I lead is by bringing my best self to whatever it is I'm doing at the time, um, and I think if we could if we could begin to shift let's let's take that as an as an example if we could begin to shift from leadership to contributorship, then we might not have so many people who are feeling disconnected from their workforce that they can't imagine going out of their home and driving back into the workplace because it's just this soulless disconnected place because. They have to turn themselves off to go to work. Yeah. If you followed um, Severance, but you can go back as far as Office Space for the last like thirty years. Yeah, TV shows and movies for people that haven't yet watched these. And they should. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, yeah. forgive me. Yes, yeah. TV shows and movies. There's so many cultural artifacts uh, that say we feel disconnected from the thing that we do uh, to create economic uh, vitality, um, and I think if we could move toward a situation where our organizations, whatever they were, were not so much led by hierarchical structures, but were led by contribution, then people would feel, mm. I believe, free to say, this is, this is my best contribution. This is the thing I bring. Mm. Now, the reason why that, why that, as impractical as that might sound, I, the reason why I think it has great currency for our businesses is because so often businesses think the job of the CEO is to imagine this suite of products that creates economic value in the marketplace and then to work backwards to, um, to build that thing of value, whatever that product is. It could be a, you know, could be a app. It could be a 
physical product, a Cummins diesel engine, whatever that is. Um, but what if instead the, the leadership of a company was able to say, who has the world brought us? Who's here? And what could we create out of it? Not, not completely disconnected from the kinds of things we do, but what's possible? With all these, we got this uh, 900 people that work for us, 5,000 people that work for us. What's possible? What could we create in the world if we imagined this group of people working together to create something? Um, and that is what I mean when I say a company that operates based on its value rather than thinking about its core product and, mm. and economic value needs. That's what, that's what it would look like. Hmm. Uh, th this whole question of of work is so curious. Some people feel like work should be an exchange of energy for and time for remuneration. Sure. That's all they want. When right. they go to work, they they're not looking for family. Mm -hmm. They're not looking for meaning. Yeah. They say, I have a place in my life where I do all that. Right. But for 40 hours of 168 hour a week, I do these other actions and behaviors that I hope produce something good in the world, but all I'm looking for is yeah. my job. I don't want my job to be meaning-making. Right. And other right. people very much want their jobs to be meaning-making. Right. Sometimes I wonder if that's because some people don't have other, other avenues for meaning-making. Yeah. How do you think about that when you're talking to see, and you know, I mean, sometimes even a CEO or yeah. even a founder is like, look, I mean, all I wanted to do was start a thing, and now right. I've... Holy, now I'm running this whole deal. I don't want to do any of what I do here. Yeah. I'm yeah. only doing this out of service to something else. But so I don't, work is really complicated. How do you think about that side of work, yeah. both from the worker and from the, the leader side? Yeah. And I'm going to answer it two different ways. So, so let me answer the direct question you asked first, which is how do I talk to CEOs about it? Um, and the way I talk to CEOs about it is that the most significant, some of the most significant issues you face are affected by the fact that people feel disconnected from their work. So huge, especially in IT, in the IT sector, there's a huge employee retention problem. Yeah. Frankly, there's just a employee problem. Um, we <clears throat> we're coming to a place within the next 10 years where there, where there will be far more jobs in the IT industry than there are people to work them. As the baby boomers retire, there's this giant gap in the middle oh. of the market. And so we will have um, will not AI just fill all of that gap? Are we not just going <laughs> to spackle over that big hole? <laughs> that, the plan? that is certainly the dream Isn't of a lot plan? of people, okay. Sam Altman included, yeah. but uh, no, I don't okay. think it will because AI, again, e to the extent AI replaces jobs, it's going to be replaced. The, people are going to be replaced by people using AI. I mean, it's, it's, I it's, it's not going to, it doesn't solve the problem. What it does is it makes the perimeter, the uh, fringes of the market redundant. The people who Got do it. the least creative things will over time become redundant by, by um, artificial technology. But I don't think it's going to have the impact, okay. at least in the next 20 to 30 years that, that has been, we've all sort of feared. So when I'm talking to CEOs, what I help them recognize is that some of their, some of the greatest problems they face, which is, um, keeping people when they're there, making them interested in doing their work are related to this question of meaning. Like it, if it's a shitty job, I'm going to half-ass it. I'm going to do what I have to do to get through the day and get my paycheck. And if you actually want to increase the value of your output, increase the value of your company, figure out how to engage your employees better. But there's a second answer as well, which is, again, goes back to where we are in history. And so, um, there's a book by Jamie Wheel called Recapture the Rapture, which is not a, at all about the sort of Christian conception of rapture, um, except that he uses, he kind of plays with that as a metaphor. And what he, what Jamie Wheel would suggest is that we are in a particular time where we saw the failure of the religious narrative. And then we saw the, we're seeing the failure of the technology narrative. Technology was supposed to make our lives better mm -hmm. and it hasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're in a time mm -hmm. of what he would call meaning 3.0. Like what's our, What's the third narrative that's gonna uh, that's gonna determine how we're gonna how we're gonna live in the world, um, and and that's where I think a lot of those things coming out of the culture, whether it's the the TV show Severance or Office the movie Office Space or any of those things, are they're just they're just reflecting the fact sure. that we're at a time we're at a time in history, and this is this is what marks it, 
Um, but those are two different conversations. I wouldn't sit, sit around and talk about deep philosophical and historical trends with mm-hmm. the CEO. Um, but it is, but, but I think both are true and we need to have both perspectives because we need to realize that we need, um, sort of MVPs that, that help deal with the problem now, but we need a perspective, mm. a values perspective that is 40, 60, a hundred years um, wide. What about the people who, f- for some people, the reason they stay in their jobs are the people they work with. Yeah. You hear it all sure. the time. Yep. And some of those people also say things like, you know, I, I'm not trying to get all my meaning out of my job. A lot of therapists, pastors, personal coaches are often telling people, you need to figure out how to have more meaning in your life than your job. Right. So it's coming from the individual <clears throat> feeling it, mm-hmm. a lot of advisors to how someone can live a, a more flourishing life are advising sure. it. Yeah. Are you not saying, no, let's try to turn jobs and work into meaning-making spaces. <laughs> and the, so how do you think about those competing other narratives that people are injecting in our society about work? Yeah. Because um, isn't work-life balance basically do your work and then do other things for meaning-making? Isn't sure. that fundamentally what work-life balance is questioning? That's the fundamental assumption. I would agree with that. And um, what I would say is for me and, and even for the clients and the corporations I work with, what I'm inviting people is to is on a journey toward a place mm. where there will be more cohesion between work and life, where what I find joy in in the world, out in the world, and what I do for an occupation, there's less space between those. Um, that it, it makes sense, uh, for example, that if I'm, um, you know, if on my off time, I love bird watching, for example, it makes sense that I'm the QA inspector on lines of code, like that, that fits like those, those values tend to fit together and kind of helping people understand their authentic self and find work and live into their Mm. work roles in a way that, that is resonant with who they are and how they were made. I think, um, helps us move toward these values that are so important, but, Mm. but it has the, the, the added side effect of making companies, more productive and therefore more profitable. Like mm. there's, there's actually a way to make money doing that. Not that, not that that's the end in and of itself, but so for companies that are worried about whether this is just some, you know, kind of woo woo, uh, new ageism that I'm suggesting. In fact, this is, you know, we have reams of data to suggest that this is the great problem. You know, I've done a lot of work in mergers and acquisitions and 70% of mergers fail because they didn't merge the cultures. They got are, all the systems right and everything else. Are they mergeable? Like, is the reason they fail because fundamentally two different systems can't can't, uh, can't yeah. merge? One's going to be sure I in front the of the other or something? Yeah, yeah. I understand the question. And often what you see is uh, power dynamics. So the mm-hmm. buyer wants the, the seller to merge into their culture, become mm-hmm. like us. And, and oftentimes if you had that lens, you wouldn't have done the merger to begin with. I did a merger <laughs> for... I did a merger for a large technology company, uh, which um, was in a, in a factory that was built in the 1950s. It looked like a bomb shelter. Um, and they bought a software company that was in Long Beach, California, that had a slide in the middle of their, of their office. And the merger failed 18 months later because they couldn't figure out how to pull the culture together. So I think, I think it, it could be a, a guiding value to, pre- to prevent certain mergers. But I generally think all... All culture is mergeable eventually. Mm-hmm. We can find ways to... Once you drive out all the people who are currently employed there and replace them with new people that the, the buyer has, has hired. It's possible. Fundamentally, you made, made it. I think it's possible to actually do it yeah. without that, but yeah. I mean, sure. churches are this way. Churches are exactly A lot way. of nonprofit organizations, yep. businesses, mm-hmm. where uh, the, the people who make the deal yeah. feel like this is a great deal. Yeah. And then somebody who works there now has new coworkers both right. look at each other and think, Hey, we're like the, we're like the step brothers and sisters. We right. didn't ask for this. We didn't make this deal, but we've got to make the best of it. And then one of them is like, and you're never taking over this territory. Yeah. I have built my, like, yeah. there is so sure. much interpersonal dynamics, mm-hmm. I guess. Okay. So my, my last question on this is, um, from your own story of saying you were waiting for someone to come and do for you that which you've now taken as your own uh, radical. Yep. You had a phrase radical for it. self ownership. Radical self ownership. Mm-hmm. 
for the people who say to the world, that's what we fundamentally need. Right. We don't need our companies. We don't need our politics to solve this for us. Right. We need as people to uh, become more healthy, more mature. We have to be better. Right. Don't wait for the system to be better to fulfill that thing you're missing. If you have emptiness at work, right, right. So you see what I'm get going at? I like the therapist, sure. the counselor, yeah. Yeah. the co- yeah. is saying like, "Hey, get your eyes off everything else." Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile your two worlds of yeah of, of those things? Yeah. So the question you're asking is exactly the right starting point. So the starting point is, I am 100 percent responsible for me. And 0% responsible for every, everything, every, literally everything else, including our closest relationships. And when I'm able to do that, what that does then, what it has the capacity to do is to give me a better sense of who I am and what I can contribute to the world, which I can then use to impact systems. I can then use to impact my job. I can use to impact my relationships. I can, I can bring the best of me to everything because I have a more honest, open relationship with myself. Um, and so, um, you know, one of my critiques of, of a lot of the cultural conversation right now is that there is this libertarianism, which is I don't need anybody else. Like I can do it on my own, which is ironic because often I read that on a website, which yeah. is created by, you know, decades of government funding <laughs> the internet protocols but um so i don't need anything you're like, saying you see you read libertarian thought being propagated on a website which was only brought together by the opposite the opposite of libertarian thought. precisely okay. yeah yeah it's the height of precisely. irony yeah if you want gotcha. to know what irony is it's a libertarian website um <laughs> but um it's it's the it's it has more to do with the direction than the work itself so for me, the way it makes sense to me and the way it's, it's been transformative in my life is to say, what do I own? What do I bring? And how can I bring that authentically to whatever I commit myself to? Uh, so if that's a, if that's a, a, gover- you know, a, a governmental thing, if that's a, if that's a business that I'm working with, if it's an individual I'm coaching, if it's a community project that I'm helping to lead, um, I have a better sense of who I am and what I bring. And so I can bring that authentically to whatever I set my hand to. And because I'm a little more, because I'm more self-honest, I can also, I can also prioritize that. Got it. Like, how do I know if I'm waking up, like if I've committed to a nonprofit, a nonprofit uh, organization that I'm helping to foster, but I'm also, I also have clients over here in the corporate space. How do I know what to do on a day? The more honest I am with myself, the more I can navigate I that and literally do the next right thing. So it's not like I don't, do the other things. I just, it helps me order that work. So I want to ask you about the other cross current that people hear in our society a lot around work and meaning making and all this is that the fundamental way that a person's going to grow and get out of their, their, uh, doldrums, their depressions, their lames, lames, is that the word? What was the thing during, during Carter's administration? Was oh, right? um, malaise. Malaise. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, getting out of their malaise is to coin a phrase from that was popular from the time we first met, it's not about you. Sure. Don't make life about you. Make life about something bigger than you. Make life about service to others or have a cause bigger than yourself. So how do you reconcile that narrative, which a lot of people find connection to, yeah. something bigger than themselves, yeah. versus care for you, the thing you need to worry about is you because you're the only thing that you're responsible for and your outcomes and your contributions to the world. How do you yeah. fit those puzzle pieces uh, together or what do you do with them? Yeah, the way I, the way I navigate those questions is um, I am fully responsible to me to live out my purpose and when I set my purpose to be of maximum service to the world, then I can actually live out my purpose in a way that's impactful for others and, and truly demonstrate that it's not about me. It's about, it's about creating change in the world. It's about creating beauty and goodness in the world. And I can do that because I'm a more healthy actor on that stage. Hmm. 
if, if we flash back, I don't know, we can go 25 years or I don't know, we could go back 35 years when you yeah. were a consultant in the religious spaces and political right. spaces and helping then Republican candidates mm -hmm. connect with religious voters and move yeah. them to behave in ways that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you might find terrifying as to what that has wrought over 35 years. Right. Um, if you heard, if if you time machined yourself back there, yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, in sort of sure. back to the future like fashion, yeah, and heard someone say the things that you're saying <laughs> now, how, where does that land in you? Like, yeah. wh wh how do you think? I know this is a thought experiment, but yeah. as best you can sort of play that game, yeah, how would you have heard yourself? How would you then be hearing yourself now? What, what would you think of yourself? Um, and what you're hearing. The most accurate answer that comes immediately to mind is I would have thought that person's not of my tribe. Mm. They're not one of us. Um, mm. I, you know, being raised in evangelicalism that bordered on fundamentalism, I built a lot of tribalism into the way that I saw the world. So who's, who's our people and who's them? You know, uh, for me growing up in a, in a very strict religious culture, um, it wasn't just it wasn't just Christians that were going to get saved. It wasn't even all Christians. Like most of the Methodists on my street were going to hell because they because they hadn't whatever whatever we thought you were supposed to do. We hadn't done our thing because they hadn't been us. They're not mm -hmm. us, so they must not be going to heaven. Um, and so, the what comes to mind first when you ask me that question is what I would have thought of me is he's not. Me, he's not. Mm. He's not us. He's not the right. He's not the right. He's not in the right tribe. Um, and then what I probably, where I probably would have gone next is, he needs to think right, mm. because growing as growing up as I did in in the form of Christianity, I did. You know, going to Liberty University, working for Jerry Falwell. There was a there was a real conception that we had the intellectual framework right, mm. like we were right. And so anybody who didn't think the way we did or even describe things the way we did, like in our language frame, yeah. they, they weren't thinking correctly because we assumed that what we thought was the correct way of thinking. And so what I probably would have, what 30-year-old Will would have thought of 59-year-old Will is, yeah, he just, he just needs to think about this more. Like, I got some books. Can I send you yeah. some books? Like, yeah. you know. Isn't it an irony that over those 29 years, you've thought a lot about all this? <laughs> More so than the 30-year-old Will right. ever thought Absolutely. was possible to think about it, from yeah. dissertations to personal work to yeah. friendships. and Yeah. But, and, and I've shared this with you before, that, that you know, one of, the, one of the ways to understand where we got where we are today, with particularly with Christianity and evangelicalism in North America, the United States, let's say, um, is that all the great movements of my lifetime since the 60s and 70s have been more about changing structures and less about uh, assess uh, fundamentally reassessing what we believe, mm. right? And so um, I referred to the Jesus Revolution earlier, which is the Greg Laurie biopic. If you, if you follow that, if you, if you watch it, what you see is that... Um, Laurie came to realize, and um, the individual that played by Kelsey Grammer, the, the name of the real character. Chuck Smith. What's that? Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith. Yeah, thank you. Chuck Smith. Like, their, their contribution was not, let's rethink what this story means in the world today. Their contribution was, let's figure out a better way to sell it. Yeah, better distribution system. Better, it's a better distribution system. And... And you, you and I both participated in some of yeah. those "quote unquote" better distribution systems. Exactly. Um, so what what I would have thought at the time was, here's somebody who just needs. I got some books. I, I need to give this guy, and if he could just get to thinking right, it it would be correct. What's changed for me over time is I'm far more suspicious of what I actually think I know, mm. but I have more confidence in my story. Wow. So I don't I don't really need to be right. Right. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a funny thing for people who've worried a lot about being right. 
Precisely. Yeah. But, but what I have is a greater sense, and, and, and I've moved away too from certainty, but toward a greater sense of confidence. Like I'm, yeah. um, and the way I like to think of it is if I was walking on, on a path or on a I mean, mountain path, I do a lot of hiking now that I've been, I live in North Carolina, um, am I more sure-footed on the path? Mm-hmm. And that's how I tend to think of myself. This So 30-year-old Will would have thought today's Will was just confused and wavering. Oh, he's yeah. wavering. No, I'm, I'm more confident. My, my steps are much more sturdy. Um, and I, I have a better sense of where I'm going, but, it, but it's less of a clear destination than it is a set of values mm. that I'm trying to align my life toward. Mm. Anything we should talk about that I missed with you? This was great. Where, where do people find what you're up to? What if these ideas are interesting? How do they get them other than this conversation? Easiest way is to go to willsampson.com mm-hmm. and they can... Uh, that was a guy who was early in the internet, if you own willsampson.com. Well, it's funny because there is a, uh, there's a Scottish folk singer named Will Sampson who for years has tried to buy my domain. Uh-huh. But because I was, yeah, it was, I was uh, around at the time of the original auction... Yeah. Domain auction, I was able to buy my name. And, and so, unfortunately, yeah. Irish folk singers don't have the kind of money had you been named Will Smith or well, something. Well, that's true. <laughs> I think he was also five at the time, so that 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 probably yeah. precluded it but as now, well. But now if he got really famous and he could pay you what you wanted for it, that would have been fun. Maybe. Well, this thank you great. for your friendship. Thank you. Uh, you have a lot of things on your wrist. Yeah. Can you, do they mean anything? Is they there do. A quick, can you do a quick you bet. recap of these? So um, one of the principles that's really important to me is the idea of tikkun olam, which mm. is a, a Hebraic principle that sort of means peace in action. So we mm. all know shalom. Shalom is tikkun olam is the kind of shalom that exists when we are doing our part. The next one is a chakra bracelet. It helps remind me that I am a whole person made up of parts. Um, the next one is um, a. It's called the evil eye. I bought it in Turkey um, and. I don't have a ton of significance to it, except that that particular trip was really meaningful to yeah. me. And so it reminds me of a time. Um, and then the other um, is a um, bracelet that relates to Cherokee spirituality. Mm. And so that's something, having just moved to Asheville, North Carolina, that's uh, I'm, I'm really exploring other modalities of spirituality, including the Cherokee traditions, which mm. are rooted in that area. Wow. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. This Thanks, buddy. All right. a treat. Happy birthday, Thank of you. all things. <laughs> Happiest birthday. Thanks, Doug. Uh, may you have many, many more. There's this, uh, I think it's an Irish saying, might be Scottish, um, uh, that goes, may you be born, or sorry, may you be buried in a casket made of a 100-year-old tree that was planted today. <laughs> Isn't that nice? You get, may you get another 100 years. I love that. All right. Thank uh, you. See you, bye. Hey, y'all. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, it was fun for me to actually to watch and re-listen um, to the pattern of, of how we were um, chatting about those things. Hope you feel like uh, this podcast is among other contributions to your life. Feels like a conversation among friends. Maybe we haven't known each other 20, 25 years like Will and I have, but Um, we're getting to know each other here on this uh, live stream and podcast, and we really hope you feel like you're part of it. So thanks all. Uh, Thinking of you, Alex and Barbara, Kimberly, Jim, Yabitz, uh, others for making your comments today on the YouTube channel. Really appreciate it. And all of you will make your comments over there on uh, Facebook or Twitch or X or wherever you're doing this. I can't even say X with a straight face, honestly. Uh, So uh, thanks for being a part of all of this. We really appreciate it. You can keep up with all that we're up to over at votecommongood.com. And uh, have a great day, y'all. Talk to you soon.